Welcome to the OC24 podcast, where we've taken some of the best talks and discussions from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime, which showcases some of the most interesting research into organised crime around the world. This episode is called Breaking Drug Policy Silos in Francophone Countries, Breaks and Opportunities. Welcome to this session of the 24-hour conference on global organised crime. Uh, my name is Laurie Doviac and I will, uh, I will be the moderator for today's panel. Uh, this session is entitled Breaking Drug Policy Silos in Francophone Countries and the speakers will present insights on the current transformation of drug policy from two different countries, uh, France and Canada, where of course the, the context of drug policy are very different. Um, each presentation will be 10 minutes uh, and they will be followed by a very brief questions and answers session of around five minutes for specific questions. And then we will have a broader transversal um, discussion between all the speakers. Uh, I'll be monitoring questions in the chat, uh, so please uh, do ask them. Uh, please be aware that the panel uh, will be terminated in 75 minutes, so we will need to conclude on time. Um, and we will start now with uh, the presentation by Marie-Geoffrey Roustide uh, with an international perspective on the effects of COVID-19 on illicit drug and uh, drug policy. Uh, Marie-Geoffrey Roustide is a research fellow at uh, INSERM, so the French National Health Institute. She's also a senior fellow at the Baldy Center for Law and Social Policy at the University of Buffalo in the US and an affiliate scientist at the British Columbia Center on Substance Use in Vancouver, Canada. She's worked for 30 years on the politics of harm detection in France, Europe and North America. Uh, so please, Marie, you have the floor for 10 minutes. So thank you, Laurie. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, uh, so thank you, Laurie, for um, introducing me and for sharing this session. So today I will present some very preliminary results um, from a survey that I did with my colleague uh, Karine Bertrand from uh, Quebec. So this survey is focused on the impact of COVID-19 on harm reduction and drug treatment services. And I will present uh, the result from a two qualitative surveys that have been conducted in France and in Quebec. Uh, but as we have only 10 minutes, um, I will uh, be focused on the French part of the survey. And uh, in the discussion, it will be possible also to have a more broader overview and uh, to talk also ab about Quebec. So to begin, uh, it's important to say that uh, COVID-19 is not only a pandemic, but it can be considered as a syndemic, um, as it has been described uh, by Orton in The Lancet in 2020. Uh, what means um, saying that COVID-19 is a syndemic? It means that COVID-19 increases or reveals social and health inequalities that are affecting the most vulnerable people. In a pandemic situation, several disorders can aggravate each other, and especially they are accentuated by social conditions such as poverty, stigma, stress, and structural violence. 
and people who use drugs are especially uh, especially to face um, uh, deprived social conditions such as poverty, stigma, stress, and structural violence. It's also important to note that addiction disorders are often associated with health comorbidities, and that's why uh, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, people who use drugs are at higher risk of infections, and they can be more affected by serious consequences of COVID-19. As a consequence of this, uh, um, of considering uh, COVID-19 as a syndemic, it's very crucial to implement measures that address health, but also social inequalities for vulnerable populations. During COVID-19, um, our survey has shown that um, services uh, regarding uh, harm reduction or drug treatment have been sometimes disrupted in France and in Quebec, but social innovation have also emerged in both countries. And that's what I will present now with a focus on France. So this uh, survey is based um, on a qualitative um, methodology. So we did semi-directive interviews with people who use drugs, uh, who attend harm reduction services or drug treatment um, services. And we also made semi-directive interviews with different stakeholders including politicians and also harm reduction professionals and drug treatment providers. So one of the first uh, results of this qualitative survey is that during the first phase of COVID-19, uh, this phase was characterized by a very strong commitment of harm reduction and addiction treatment professionals in France. Um, and all these professionals try to respond to this health emergency very efficiently, especially during the first lockdown. And it's also important to note that during the first lockdown in France, there was a huge lack of availability of masks during the first weeks of the pandemic. And despite this, professionals accepted to take risks to take care of people who use drugs in arm reduction facilities and drug treatment centers. It's also important, our survey also reveals that COVID-19 uh, was an opportunity to create new forms of solidarity and new forms of mutual help networks between colleagues, between professionals who work in harm reduction and drug treatment areas. In France, uh, people who use drugs have um, to face very few service closures and there, there was a, a, a very a good continuity in, accesses to, in accessing to services. During the second phase of COVID, after the first lockdown, uh, we can also note that uh, more and more professionals who operate in harm reduction and drug treatment services were exhausted because they have been very, very committed during the first um, phase of the COVID-19. And services have to face difficulties because professionals have to manage family constraints, restrictions related to the pandemic, and a continuity at work. Um, regarding innovations in France, COVID-19 introduces an opportunity for having more flexibility in the duration of opioid substitutive treatment prescriptions. And it was also an opportunity for allowing new other users to have access to opioid substitutive treatment, especially the most marginalized users. So a lot of drug uh, treatment centers 
um, accepted to have new patients. And this improvement in access to medicines was the way to limit overdoses linked to a potential increase of people who will probably buy heroin on the black market with no guarantee about the dosage of the heroin, the purity of the heroin that they will buy on the drug, on the drug market. So we can, see, we can say that COVID-19 has revealed one of the strengths of the French harm reduction model, because the French harm reduction model is based on biomedical model of a very broad access to opioid substitutive treatment and an easy access to this treatment into community medicine. Another important result uh, from this uh, COVID-19 survey was that in France, public authorities decided not to increase the repressive approach to black markets. They decided at the opposite to improve access to medicines. And uh, at, at the opposite in other countries that have different policies such as the US and less sustainability of harm reduction services, the um, increase of overdoses was very, very important at the same time. So another result of our survey was that uh, is that COVID-19 was also opportunity for improving the access to housing for marginalized users. Uh, for example, in Paris, several hundreds of rooms uh, were um, uh, implemented for the most precarious users who were living in the streets. And uh, we did some interviews in directive interviews with users who uh, can benefit uh, from these uh, new rooms during the COVID-19. And um, they talked a lot about the very positive effect of housing on their life trajectories and especially on how it allows themselves to uh, self-regulate um, in an easier way uh, their use of drugs. And this access to housing during the COVID-19 period was also um, uh, an opportunity for them uh, to have access to treatment and to social rehabilitation. So it was a real improvement of their, of their life, of their daily life. So these innovations have been implemented also to reduce pre-existing weaknesses of the French care model, because the French care model is largely focused on the biomedical dimension and was not very much focused on social rehabilitation for people who use drugs. And with this COVID-19 pandemic, who reveals the importance to also act on social aspect of drug use, COVID-19 was an opportunity to improve this aspect of harm reduction in France. So COVID-19 was a way to overcome an approach to drug use and addiction in silos and to reconcile medical aspect and social aspect of, um, of um, improving lives of people who use drugs. Uh, an important, something that is also very important to say now is that this improvement in accessing to housing for marginalized users need also to be sustainable uh, during time. And another important result from, uh, from our qualitative survey was that we can also observe uh, from the semi-directive interviews with users that they have to face a more tolerant attitude of a part of police officers toward marginalized users who live in the street during the first lockdown. At the opposite, people who are living in the street have to face a lot of discrimination 
especially from some residents um, who um, uh, put uh, very uh, bad pictures from people uh, who use drugs uh, on social networks and uh, some residents um, um, uh, add a lot of um, add a lot of um, were negative words about people who are living in the street. And when we compare the attitude of police officer compared to the attitude of um, uh, some residents, the uh, attitude uh, of police officer during the first lockdown was uh, a better one and more tolerant, to, especially towards the most marginalized users. And that's why COVID-19 has also made possible to rethink care in a global and complex manner. This was an opportunity to promote a more inclusive and integrated strategies that go beyond strictly repressive strategy. Because it's important also to highlight that uh, France is one of the most repressive countries towards drug use um, in, in, in Europe. And that was important um, to see that during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, there was a balance and um, uh, between um, social care and repressive approach and stakeholders who were um, more repressive towards drug users before the COVID pandemic uh, uh, as another attitude uh, more tolerant uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Sorry, Marie, you'll need to wrap up within two minutes. Okay, so I have two slides now. So additionally, before COVID-19 in France, there was a very punitive approach of alcohol use for marginalized people uh, who were living in shelters. And during the lockdown, this punitive approach was not possible anymore. People who use drugs ask for having the possibility to drink alcohol occasionally, and professionals need to revise their practices and need to be more open-minded to harm reduction with alcohol use. So we can say that COVID-19 has shifted the values and practices of professionals to give up their punitive approach of alcohol for people who use drugs and to consider the well-being of people who use drugs more important than a repressive approach for alcohol use. To conclude, we can, see that, we can say that COVID-19 uh, reveals the strengths and the weaknesses of the French addiction treatment model. France is characterized by public funding of the services, which has con facilitated, facilitated continuity of services for harm reduction and drug treatment. France is also characterized by a sustainable and highly structured care and harm reduction system based on large NGOs that are only focused on people who use drugs. And this point is a bit different uh, compared to what happened in Quebec, for example. And the health system in France is also very structured and has resisted quite well to the COVID-19 until now, with little transfer between services in the field of addiction to COVID-19 services, for example. Nevertheless, uh, our survey highlights that um, some territorial inequalities have been noted in France regarding the improvement of access to care and housing during COVID-19 for people who use drugs. And another very important result of our survey is that in France, we have strong intermediary institutions uh, that are national networks of NGOs. And these national networks of NGOs were able to influence the French public authorities to change rapidly policies because of pre-existing alliance and um, this pre-existing alliance between 
these national networks and NGOs and public authorities make possible the addiction uh, treatment system and harm reduction system to evolve rapidly and to be more adapted to the needs of people who use drugs. Well, thank you, Marie, for a very interesting insight on the effects of COVID-19 on drug policy and illicit drugs. Um, I don't see any questions in the chat, so we will go on with Karine Bertrand's presentation. Um, she will tell us more about the TAPASH program currently implemented in France and Quebec. Uh, Karine Bertrand is a clinical psychologist. She's a professor in community health sciences at the University of Sherbrooke in Canada since 2006. Uh, she's also a scientific director at the Addiction Research Institute in Quebec and a shareholder for the research chair on gender and intervention in addiction. Uh, so please, uh, Karin, grab the floor for 10 minutes. Thank you for this invitation. Uh, so the topic of my presentation is about the arm reduction program based on low threshold work for youth living in situations of social precarity. Uh, and we will also discuss the implication of so for social and health uh, policy. So young people living in situation of social precarity uh, have numerous associated social uh, and psychosocial problems. So uh, delinquency, but also addiction, residential inst instability, addiction, and barriers to employment. Uh, so be before going further, uh, what is social precarity? What do we think when we, we talk about this concept? So maybe at first, uh, it's important to see the intervention, arm reduction intervention um, with the lens that is global. So we want to take into account the individual, but also its social context. So um, we, we can relate the concept of social precarity with the risk environment of uh, roads. Uh, the main principle is that if you foster economic security, uh, it's a way to reduce risk associated with drug use. So when we try to understand delinquency, uh, we will uh, conceptualize delinquency com like one of the uh, many uh, complex health and social needs that a person uh, have uh, because she's confronting uh, a multiple dimension of social precarity. Uh, we talk about social and emotional support, for example, economic precarity, the employment, barriers to employment, and also housing, for example. So the context of this study is also in, in situated at first in Montreal, where it's been a long time that we just document that there's a large, a vast majority of the street youth in Montreal who have a substance use disorder and as well often associated with mental disorders. So we had some data from 2010 with the court of Elisoa. But now what it's new is that the uh, community organization try also to look at the needs uh, for the, the, the economic security and the employment aspect. Um, so when we look at the literature for the to understand well the link with substance use and work, we see that there is a really complex interrelation. For example, unemployment can predict psychological distress and also the aggravation of substance use. And the other way, we also see in longitudinal studies that aggravation of substance use predict employment problems and unemployment. 
And another type of literature is, uh, and it's more recent, we have a look at the access to paid work for active drug users. Often we see uh, the paid work as uh, that is uh, indicators of outcome of success after a treatment when the drug user is not using anymore any substances. Uh, and we realize with this work that, in fact, active drug user, even street youth, have some access to uh, paid work. And when they do, uh, it's associated with reduction of HIV risk behaviors, better mental health and physical health, reduction of criminality, and also engagement in care. So based on these data, some authors just highlight the relevance of low threshold work for arm reduction programs. Uh, this type of uh, program is based upon a holistic conception of uh, arm reduction uh, with the potential to address some of the complex needs of street involved youth, including those related to substance use and its consequences. So uh, this type of pro programs also opening the way that op are, it's opening the way for a longer term process of social occupational integration but at the beginning, it's not necessarily to uh, help the person to have a, a normal, if we can say, job, but use the work to help the global health of this person. Uh, so based on this principle, uh, we have some data that uh, validate the relevance of this type of programs, but we need more adequate evaluation of such approaches. Uh, some, we, we see some of these programs uh, in, uh, in cities like, like we'll see in Montreal and Bordeaux in France, uh, but it was not evaluated in the world uh, more globally. It's uh, rarely uh, evaluated. So uh, to guide program and policy development with, res with respect sorry, to arm reduction programs that incorporate access to low threshold work, one of the aim of this study is to understand the perspective of the young people who participate in this uh, low threshold uh, work program called TAPAGE. Uh, in terms of program goals and the relevance of this type of program and also the meaning it has in their life. So it's a study with the focus on the experiential knowledge because we think it's the added value that is important. This participatory research give really priority to the voices of these young people because we think it's, they have some useful knowledge to influence, influence our effort to improve this, this, this type of program and also to develop more holistic, holistic harm reduction practices. So rapidly for the method, we did, we did a qualitative evaluation design study uh, with an approach that is participatory. Uh, we want to improve program and practices to bring solutions to identified problems. So we work with stakeholders at every step and uh, at every step of the research. And we also uh, put some importance about research and evidence-based practice, but also the experiential knowledge of the clinician and of the youth who use the programs. And it's oriented uh, with a capacity building uh, approach. So, well, maybe just uh, fast also, we have the SOA research committee with peer researcher and clinician involvement. And we also have a research panel, a low threshold research panel with uh, 20 young, young people since 2018 that participated, including eight to 10 youth uh, that uh, is participating or 
participating on a regular basis. We did focus group, uh, 14 focus group, and interviews uh, in Montreal and in Bordeaux uh, about the participation, about the program and uh, with the youth and also the staff, partner, and employers. Uh, it's important to say that at the beginning, it's for 20 is, is in Montreal, and after it was in Bordeaux, and for now, now it's everywhere uh, in France, in many, many regions in France. Uh, it's really a, a, a more, there's more tapage in France now than in uh, Quebec, but at the beginning it was in, in Montreal 20 years ago. Okay, so some essential uh, results. So the essential components of tapage from the program participants' point of view. And it's the same for other stakeholders. Uh, essential component are the on-the-job accompaniment and support from program staff. Uh, measures that reduce barriers to employment also. So a fast simplified procedure, tolerance of substance use being paid on the same day. And also the access to a quick source of income that is central and it's an immediate concern. So this is an important part, not only to get the youth in the program, but also per se, it, uh, it's uh, important to, uh, to respond to an immediate concern. So uh, we see, for example, that this kind of money can be uh, important to pay debts and also to, uh, to have food. Uh, another uh, essential component uh, is that TAPASH puts conditions in place that allow young people to experience success in their efforts to earn a legal income, in contrast to previous attempts at work that are often marked by numerous failures. So, so sometimes for many youth, it's the first time that they can earn a legal income, income and feel really uh, proud of themselves and not, uh, and not in, a, in a failure dynamic. Another, another type of uh, component is the importance of the rela relational dimension of the program. Uh, and this is with peers. For example, you have a youth, uh, a young people, a young person, sorry, who said, uh, when I was working uh, with my, my peer, I thought it was really going to explode. But no, we managed to do what we're supposed to do. So the, the group aspect so to work, together with other peers and to have a relational harmony in this situation of work is really uh, something that comes in, the, in the, what, what they say, like really important in their experience. And also the relational dimension, of course, with the clinical staff to, uh, to, uh, that are supportive, supportive non-judgmental, and also have a comprehensive uh, approach. Another aspect is the reduction in stigma. Uh, the program participants highlight the harm caused by stigma in their life, uh, and also uh, the perception that tapage leads to change in how society perceives them. Uh, so you can see, for example, that for, for some of the participants, they say if you have mental health, you're, uh, you're, you're a bipolar woman, schizophrenic and all that. Uh, it's that they accept you anyway because they are at workplace that, that will refuse to have you. So being different in many, uh, many uh, ways, not only because you have precar precarity, uh, uh, you use drugs, but often for other many reasons, they feel that they are rejected in, by the society in general, but also specifically by workplaces. So this is another aspect to have a different experience and being accepted 
that was really important for them. Also, uh, reduction of stigma because tapage make them proud of their work and even for one participant to exercise citizenship. So you have, a, for example, a transcription where the, the young uh, person explained that uh, they, they have a success when they see, for example, that we would need to, to have some benches in the, in the place where it's not, uh, it's not well, I mean, uh, it's not, uh, for example, for, for citizens, you need, for example, garbage cans and you need benches. And so they go to the city and they ask for these things and they have success in their, in their different uh, arguments and uh, requests. So it was really, he was very really proud of making a difference in his city. Sorry, Karen, you'll need to wrap up within two minutes. Perfect, thank you. So I was at the end. Uh, so uh, another ultimate goal is to uh, also uh, have the, the personal autonomy to the achievement of life goals. So when we pass the immediate concerns from, for, for example, food and economic uh, uh, needs, they talk also about the importance of this time of arm reduction programs to achieve their life goals. Uh, so it's an adequate answer, this type of programs to immediate needs, but also to answer to multiple needs, multiple dimension of autonomy. So in conclusion, um, I would say that integrated addiction and community services must be developed in order to address complex social and health care needs. That low threshold paid work is one example of a capacity-based intervention that uses an innovative and integrated approach to arm reduction to go beyond traditional biomedical and risk-based approach that low threshold paid work may contribute to the prevention and reduction of delinquency, and that taking into account the perspective of young, of young people who participate in that type of program draws attention to the need of forearm reduction programs to address factors in the social environment that contribute to the stigmatization of vulnerable street-involved youth and their re retention in a marginalized lifestyle, in order also to better prevent associated risk behavior. Thank you for your attention. Well, thank you, Karin. Um, I don't see any questions in the chat. Feel free to ask them. Um, we will then continue with uh, the a presentation by Deborah Demi will let us know about the state of drug policy in France. Um, Deborah Lenny is a researcher at the European Center for Sociology and Political Science at the uh, Pantheon Sorbonne University in France. Uh, she has an expertise in uh, drug policy and sustainable development cooperation. She contributes to the uh, newly launched DALEF research platform. She is also an independent consultant, especially at the UNODC. Uh, so please, Deborah, the floor is yours for 10 minutes. Thank you very much. Um, well, thank you um, everyone uh, for this invitation to this panel. I'm really thrilled to be here and thank you Marie and Karine for, for your very uh, um, insightful presentations. Uh, mine won't be as rich in terms of uh, fact and, and uh, results from survey. It's more, I would like to share today more of uh, some reflections on the state of the drug policy debate in France and more generally 
Actually, I'm going to start with a broader picture of the drug policy debate to come back to the French case uh, with one uh, question that uh, actually um, um, one question that really con concerned me for some, some time now is why the drug issue and drug-related problems are not considered as a development issue in the sense of a social economic issue. Um, for for a century now, uh, or more or less, the, the drug issue has been framed mainly as a security issue and a health issue, but nothing in between. We have developed binary vision of the problem at stakes. There is a lot of different factors that um, um, explain this. There's a lot of literature on that, and I'm not going to go through them because it's going to be too long. Um, but there is this sense that the drug issue could only be um, treated one way or the other. Now, we also see in different societies that drug realities are uh, a transversal phenomenon. Uh, they touch, they, they imply different kind of population, uh, different kind of, of, of countries, I mean, different kind of socioeconomic development, etc. And uh, it's there in the social construct, in the, in the institutional um, structures as well in the political fabrics as well, um, considering that the, the drug transaction or a transaction involving the drug trade can be a present um, here and there. Now, um, I would like to make three, now saying this um, uh, introduction, I'd like to make three points uh, to reflect on the perspective and good practices that have been uh, provided today uh, and to open up a bit the discussion on why uh, and how the drug issue could be um, more um, um, read as a social uh, issue and a de development issue. Um, I'm using both terms because I know that the development term is still uh, can can be problematic for for some people. It's not we don't have everyone uh, don't have the same definition of sustainable development. I'm using the UN definition of sustainable development and the the multidimensionary um, facets of that concept, but. It's really on the social dimension today I would like to focus. So there's there's been increased evidence uh, that the drug-related problem from the demand side or the uh, supply side, replicating the, the policy category that we have today, um, had a social dimension and need, uh, but need multifaceted and tailored um, political treatment. We've seen, um, in, in, in the presentation that uh, Marie proposed, uh, the COVID epidemic uh, really um, invite uh, stakeholders at the field level, uh, at the practitioner level, and at the political level to readjust the grid of, of uh, interpretation of the drug issue and how services uh, could be delivered to people using uh, drugs. There's also good practices developed in the tapage example is a very good one that imply um, uh, more involvement of other actors uh, of the political uh, spectrum and different sectors of intervention, the health sector, the housing sectors, uh, and other examples imply the education sector, urbanism, etc. 
And at the international level, more broadly, in the past uh, uh, five years now, or at least, yeah, decade, more or less, uh, we've seen increased, um, an increased momentum to reread the drug problems through a development-oriented um, uh, lenses. Um, meaning that um, there is a change of vision that started in 2012 with this, the, the Latin American call to open up a debate on drug policy and to revise or at least to reflect on what have been done so far uh, and why the repressive approach was not um, a unique um, recipe that uh, could be applied anytime and anywhere. And this launched a global debate uh, that um, um, ended in a, in, a, in a UN event uh, called the UN Special Assembly on, on, drug, uh, on the drug problem that came up with a new, um, well, with a new, it's not so new now because it's 2016, but it's new in the way the, the drug problem has been framed. Um, so in, in this document, there is a, a real engagement to break the, the, the traditional pillars of, um, of drug policy that goes on drug supply, drug demand, and uh, money laundering, and to expand and extend as well uh, the, um, the, the policy offer, if I, if I can say. There is seven chapters that articulate different dimension of the drug problem, so really a reappreciation of how drugs are involved in a society, in a community, at the individual level as well. We've seen, in my second point, despite the increased evidence and, and increased political momentum around the need for, um, 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 I, I had a French term, I'm sorry, around the need to, to break the silos actually of, of drug policy, uh, orchestration of new pilot uh, program on demand, but also on the, on the supply side. And I'm thinking of Colombia, uh, of um, different program of alternative development that reread the development component of these measures to reintegrate the, uh, the um, families and farmers who are cultivating crops used for, um, for producing drugs into um, um, alternative path of socioeconomic integration. It hasn't been um, working so well because of uh, political turnover and so on, and yeah, mainly, but this is an example. Another way of uh, reflecting on on the issue is to um, also read the drug issue as a human rights issue. And we have a community of researcher, of policy practitioner, of NGO, who have been uh, issuing guidelines on how merging those agenda. And actually there's a guideline um, called the Guideline on Human Rights and Drug Policy that give some inputs on how uh, uh, um, bridges could be built around these different issues. And even at the UN level, um, there were some starts of greater policy coherence uh, translated in a position paper of all UN agencies calling for greater coherence of, on drug policy and development and human rights. So there is, a, there is some signs that, um, that the way forward was, would be really to break this policy and this interpretative silos. Now, 
what I've been looking at uh, as part of my research on policy making processes at the international level and at national levels. Um, well, I've, I've mentioned that, but you understood that I, I, I'm looking at policy processes and the construction of uh, international policy making. Uh, so what I've seen is all this, um, th these initiatives are isolated and there is no real um, political engagement beyond, um, beyond a community of practitioner, beyond a coalition um, at the UN level pushing for greater language on, on this approach, uh, beyond pilot approaches in different countries at national level. And multiple factors can explain, um, again, uh, the lack of political will and this uh, um, isolate, isolation of, uh, of the different initiatives. Um, one of, well, three factors that we could look at was the, the concept. As I said in introduction, the development can mean anything for anyone. And uh, aligning on the UN definition is not, um, it's even not really uh, helpful for national or local actors that are quite far away from this whole conceptual discussion that take place in other, um, in other forms and are sometimes also far from the realities from the ground. The second factor is, is a political one. Uh, the uh, international consensus on, on drug policy, uh, some would say is fragmented, others as me and, and other researcher would say uh, is still searching itself and is in tension um, because uh, of all this new alternative way of reading the drug issue. Um, and one of the uh, clear manifestation of this tension uh, was uh, the um, 2019 ministerial statement, ministerial engagement of the Commission on Narcotic Drugs, the main policy uh, uh, body of the UN, who recognized the complementarity between drugs and development, uh, uh, the need to overcome the Oh, sorry, compartmentalized way of reading the drug issue, but still also recognize the complementarity of different uh, engagement on security, on health. So mainly pick and choose kind of, um, of, um, of the way forward. Um, and the third uh, factor is, is research and dialogue one. Uh, there is little, despite existing evidence, there is little diffusion of this evidence and, and limited um, um, conveying of this evidence toward policymakers. And that's where I come to the French example. Um, as Marie uh, presented, uh, the, 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 the French vision of the drug problem is mainly a biomedical one. And we and at least uh, for, um, for drug use um, um, and, and how it is it is treated uh, at the local level, at the, at the field level, but in the law and in the norms, it's mainly a security issue um, framed as, um, as in any other uh, country, as in, not in any other, in many other countries in, uh, in the world as, um, as um, uh, a neville or uh, a really a security um, uh, problems. Um, so what we decided to do was really to try to understand why so and, and why, um, why all these um, research have not been conveyed to the political level. 
So we organized uh, with Marie actually and with Saint du Monde and the, the, the Drug and Development Hub, a series of, of dialogue and, 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 um, and seminars online during the COVID pandemic to try to, to take advantage of this, this pause um, to reflect on how we could improve our work as researchers, as civil society practitioners, as policymakers. From that experience, um, first, we didn't reach out as many policymakers as intended, um, again, for political reason, I assume, um, but we actually could uh, put on the table a, um, a, last, um, a vast um, 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 panorama of research showing that there are some uh, initiative, project, um, um, program that are defending and actually implementing a development-oriented approach to drug-related problems, but that have not been recognized as such. And that has been linked mainly um, from my understanding, but that's maybe uh, something that we need to discuss, but from my understanding, um, this shared vision is still not actually a shared vision and a common uh, position because of the still very political entrenched dialogue on drug policy, whether it is a, science, a scientific dialogue, um, a policymaker dialogue, or a practitioner dialogue. There is this tendency to always defend uh, a position, and as I am actually doing so as well today, um, but there is this need to neutralize the, the policy debate and the scientific debate on drug policy. Um, so the, that's where I would like to throw out some, some question here um, to reflect on how we could break the silos and not replicate uh, the same um, uh, categorization as the policy one in the, the, the practitioner debate and in the scientific debate. And I would like to ask uh, you and, and us um, how to overcome the binary thinking uh, greed on drug policy and what kind of uh, actor would need to be involved, what kind of evidence and research would need to be um, also engaged in the future. And is there is, um, any other experience from other organized crime field that could teach us some lesson to change this perception. And I would leave it there and I'm sorry I, I, uh, I talked too much, but thank you for your attention. Well, thank you very much Deborah for a very insightful presentation. Um, I don't see any questions in the chat, so maybe we can, we can start with uh, Deborah's question, which are very interesting, I would be, uh, very interested in knowing what uh, Marie and Karine think about about them. So please, Marie, go ahead. So thank you, Karine and Deborah, uh, for your insight presentation. Um, Deborah, perhaps to to answer to your question, I think that um, one way um, to improve the level of the debate. Uh, and to to break the silos um, will be to have research um, in fact, to do research uh, with participatory methods. I speak from a perspective of a researcher because I'm a researcher, so that's not possible for me to speak 
from another perspective. But um, it seems to me that uh, now uh, the problem that we have to face in, in drug policy is that um, following uh, your speech, we have a lot of stakeholders who don't take, enfin, who, who have very different positions that are different from each other, and that people who share the same view as always um, between them and the organized conference and seminars who, where everybody agree, everybody has the same position. And that's very difficult to have uh, conferences um, where people from different perspectives are able to, uh, to, to, to speak together. So for me, as a researcher, what I can do um, for breaking this silo is first to do participatory research. Part participatory research, that's what we try to do with Karine, for example, in several projects that we co-lead together, um, is to have um, on the table uh, different people, such as practitioners in harm addiction or drug treatment services, and also people who use drugs. Uh, as and 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 when you involve practitioners and people who use drugs um, as being uh, active actors of the research, that means that the differences that are usually um, between patients, for, between people who use drugs, for example, and practitioners are not the same because when you have them on the table in a research, they are on the same level. The people who use drugs are not considered as a patient and with a power relationship with a practitioner, for example, they are on the same table and uh, each um, uh, opinion um, is important to hear. And I think that um, as a researcher, first I can do that to, to do part, to, to, to promote participatory research, to, to allow different stakeholders to be part of the research. And the second uh, thing that um, I think that is important also to do is to be able to organize conferences um, with stakeholders who don't share the same uh, opinions. And that's why we try to do together, Deborah, with uh, Marie Debru from Médecins du Monde. And um, I think that we achieve it uh, in some way because we, we succeed to have this uh, roundtable with politicians but politicians um, that were um, that are local politicians for some cities, where um, these local politicians try to uh, to do some innovation, and I think that it's also very important for researchers to uh, begin a dialogue with uh, politicians. And it seems to me that it will begin from the local and not from the national, because at local level. Um, the innovations are more easy to, 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 to implement. So that's the second point. And, and the third point that I think that we forget a, a, a lot um, uh, in, in our debate is to involve police officers in the discussions. Because, because researchers, as I am, and I think that's the same for Karine and for you, are 
convinced that the repressive approach doesn't work because there is an extensive literature showing that repressive approach and prohibition doesn't work. And that's probably why it's, it, it's more difficult in research and in conferences to welcome uh, people who symbolized this repression, such as, for example, police officers. And I think that um, it's a pity because um, when I, as an ethnographer, when I do semi-directive interviews with people who use drugs or with police officers, uh, when I do semi, when I conduct semi-directive interviews with them, I can understand how the relationships between people who use drugs, practitioners, or police officers are more complex than the policy that is repressive at the national level. So that's why I think it, it's very important to have also around our table of discussion also police officers. Maybe I can comment on that, yeah. So thank you. Uh, like, I, I agree with Marie, uh, uh, with the participatory research is really important because uh, I think that in this type of research, the social inequalities also surrounding drugs is really in, in the, at the center of the preoccupation for person with, person with lived experience and also the other stakeholders, community organization. And it's often an, an aspect that is not taken into account in our different approaches. Uh, one thing that I want to uh, highlight also is that often we are opposed, like you say uh, in your interesting uh, communication, Deborah, the health and the just, justice approach, it's like in a position, uh, but behind that it's, it's often we see the, the person who use drugs with a moral lens. So uh, we can see that it's a, it's a delinquent or you have a health problems or you have a bad habit. For example, we see as weak, sick, with bad habits. So even with it, the health approach is better than say that it's a bad person because you have a health problem, so it's a step but we still have this moral, moral, moralization lens and all the stigmatization of the, the person who, drew, drug, who used drugs is really important in, also in our politics and the offer of services that we, we, uh, we, uh, we give. So I, I think that when we try to do differently and to take into account the social issues and the social inequalities, it's difficult to, structure and to implement this type of approach because of the silos that you're talking about. So how do we break silos? For example, um, in France, uh, they, uh, they was able to uh, have Tapage France because they, they, they succeed in including the low threshold work in the Macron poverty, uh, I'm sorry if I don't name it label okay, but it's the uh, poverty plan. So when you put this type of initiative with the, uh, the poverty plan, it was really a good aspect because we have a national conception that we want to help the youth in social precarity. But the drugs, it's there, but it was not that much related to, uh, to, uh, to arm reduction, but it's, it's a beginning. So we, we acknowledge that it's also an arm reduction program, but 
and and it contribute to uh, to the diminution of pover- uh, poverty. So it was a, a nice step, I think, from the politic. It's a way that some silos were breaking uh, were breaking in this uh, this uh, initiative in Quebec. Uh, it, it, it they try so for example the the low threshold um, program is that in the new plan in at the politic level it's an interministerial plan to uh, for a person with uh, for homelessness so uh, so it's in this interministerial plan that we talk about this time of initiative uh, in relation to drug use so so I think another aspect that is important is to work with uh, government to think their action plan in a way that they, they themselves they break the silos and talk to, for example, we have separate plan for addiction, for homelessness, for in the social insertion, and often we don't have a global perspective on this type of uh, of issues. So I think when we talk about this type of program, what is interesting and in, in, it's that we begin to make changes in, in the way they think their plan action plan at the government level. So that's uh, so we hope in Quebec that with this type of plan and ministerial plan that we will go further in the applicability of this type of programs all over the province because for now it's not uh, uh, we have a, an application of this type of program because who will give money? Uh, is it the responsibility from the education uh, stakeholder, arm reduction stakeholder, etc.? So uh, these silos put very high challenge to implement this type of arm reduction holistic approaches. Thank you both for a very interesting answer. Um, I guess I would bounce back off on. Uh, Marie's answer, um, you, you talked a lot about dialogue, and I was wondering how uh, this frame of dialogue could uh, be implemented in different contexts in uh, Francophone countries, and more especially in Canada and in France. Are there differences between both contexts in the way dialogue can be implemented? I will briefly begin with France and, and perhaps also give the floor to Deborah because uh, she's also that's also but she's also uh, French so she also can speak <laughs> about the French case. Um, uh, regarding France, what is very complex, uh, I don't know if it's the same for for Quebec, is that uh, is the fact that we have um, a huge gap between the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Interior. So we, and, and, and it's um, especially uh, visible now um, with um, our uh, Minister, uh, Minister of, Minister of um, the Interior, Gérald Darmanin, because um, uh, at the Ministry of Interior, we have um, this repressive lens uh, that is um, that is so huge in France, and uh, we have this prohibitive lens um, that is um, totally opposed at the health uh, perspective. And um, for example, now um, we we have to face in France a lot of difficulties for implementing drug consumption rooms due to this 
opposition between the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Interior. So uh, in France, it seems to me that one of the main fears of the politicians regarding drug policy is to be considered as a proselyte. So all French politicians hesitate to speak, for example, about legalization, cannabis legalization um, until now. So that's quite new uh, news that some voices uh, for this um, uh, presidential election um, uh, accepted to, to, to put this, um, this topic on the table. But until very recently, uh, only the green accepted to talk about um, cannabis legalization. And when, because of this represent and these fears of being considered as, as a proselyte. And for example, in Germany, um, that is a very, very, that is a country that is, that is near France. Um, there is a co coalition of politicians who are favorable of cannabis legalization and who are very comfortable with speaking very um, openly to this topic without having feared the fear to be seen as a, a, as a proselyte. And uh, for drug consumption room, for example, uh, there is the situation is totally blocked in France because it's a measure that is accepted from the Ministry of Health and as, that is loaded by the uh, public health code. But this prohibitionist um, vision lens of drug policy uh, in France impedes uh, the implementation of this health measure uh, and, and probably uh, due to this fear of proselytism. And each time we talk about drugs in France, there is always this confusion between um, harm reduction measures, for example, and the dangers of the drugs for young people. So there, the discourse is always emotional and that's very difficult um, to have um, drug policy in France that are um, uh, evidence-based. And with the COVID-19, what I try to show is that as we were in an emergency situation, during the lockdown, that was a, a unique opportunity to change policies, but policies have changed only at the local level. And at the national level, this opposition is, 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 is still um, uh, very strong due to this fear of proselytism. So Deborah, probably you will, you will have uh, other things to do on this topic. Thank you. Uh, I will actually add up on, on what you say and maybe uh, uh, come back a little bit on the the the, con the, the concept of control and and, and repression. Um, first, I agree with everything that has been said, and I would add the individual variable in here um, because people matters actually in politics. We don't have only institutions or states, but people matters and the personal vision, the moralistic vision of society as well. Um, sometime, and especially on drug policy, rub on, on, on the way they will be dealing with the issue. Um, the second thing is what I see is that, that at, at least in the French debate, but that could apply actually to the global debate as far as I've seen it, that 
reflection and um, um, and um, risk taking only happen in uh, exceptional times, uh, electoral periods. The drug issue is not a cause in itself, but it's a electoral tool or priority. It can, actually in the French debate it comes and it comes and go through the electoral processes and between. Well, it's business as usual, more or less, unless we have. Um, um, a case as in the, in the north of Paris uh, uh, or issue around the crack uh, use and then the solution is an electoralist one is to put a wall to reassure uh, the communities. Um, so this exceptional timing is something to explore and how the lesson from this exceptional times have, um, have been learned or not. And at the global level, the UNGAS um, uh, engagement in 2016 was an exceptional uh, engagement because it was not, it was urged by a president um, calling for global debate. It was not really planned uh, as, as, it, as, as uh, the way it took place. Um, and the, 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 sec the, the third uh, or second point I wanted to make was on the, uh, the concept of uh, repression and control and the need to um, uh, um, engage with uh, policemen and law enforcement agent. Uh, there's this tendency when we say that the repressive approach doesn't work uh, to also recreate some categorical, categorical thinking that control is not needed. Well, I, I don't think that drug control is not needed and that the only way of dealing with drugs is to legalize every drugs. Actually, I also believe legalization is a way of controlling access and use of drugs in different ways and on different kinds of substances. So this tendency to oppose control with legalization or repression um, or, and, or put repression and control into the same basket also um, um, is a bias, a conceptual bias that uh, slow down our policy and, and, uh, and uh, research thinking on that. So I don't know if I really answer the question, but or that I actually forgot, <laughs> but that's the, the, the point I wanted to make. Karine, would you like to add, to add something on the Canadian uh, yes. context? Yeah, maybe to, for the Canadian context, um, maybe I can say that the, the repressive approach is not really uh, important. Um, there's a, there's a really a shift in the way that we um, conceptualize uh, drugs. Um, it, it's not a perfect uh, consensus, but uh, for example, for the um, cannabis legalization, um, it was not that difficult to, when it, when it comes to pass the legalization, the perception in the population and um, in the vast majority also of uh, political uh, stakeholders, for, for example, um, it was uh, it passed in in a way there was some preoccupation about the youth, like uh, Marie said. That was the point that was a lot uh, the. The only point that was difficult and that was less consensus is about the use for the youth. Uh, for example, in Quebec, uh, the, the legal age is 21 years old and elsewhere in Canada, it's 18 or 19. It's the same as for alcohol, for example. 
So in Quebec, the Ministry of Health, um, the, the minister, in, in fact, is a neurologic who work, uh, they, they really base their, their, um, their position with, uh, for example, research data about the effect of cannabis on the, on the, um, well, on the, uh, on the youth for, for the biological effect, for example, well, the cerveau, I have a, a blank. So, um, brain. brain, yeah, exactly. So the, the effect of the brain, so they, they, they really on clinical data and there was really a, a, a hard debate between all medical profession because public health, for example, in the public health associations and uh, doctors from uh, with the public health specialization were really against putting 21 years old, for example, to, uh, to smoke cannabis in Quebec because they explained that we will just, uh, we, we think we will protect youth, but in fact, uh, they will go to the, the black market and have dangerous uh, product instead of legal product that is more uh, secure. So, uh, so that was the kind of debate that we had. And we see that there is, in fact, the preoccupation for youth is not. Uh, we see that it's not the the, the, the preoccupation that were uh, that were communicated is not happening. So I would say that there's a large con consensus in Canada that it was a good decision uh, for the uh, cannabis legalization. There there is not really debate that we should go uh, like it was before, for example. So that's uh, and even for the police, I agree that we they need to come in the dialogue. And even for, for example, the royal uh, the police uh, at the federal uh, government, so Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they take a public uh, um, position about decriminalization decriminalization sorry of all drugs also because they see the limit of a repressive approach. So even when the dialogue uh, we have community community police so. It, I agree that it don't mean that we don't have to control. In fact, we want to protect uh, the discourse. The public discourse is more about the preoccupation with dangerous drugs, with the black market that is with the COVID-19 is even more dangerous. Uh, so we want to control um, the illegal market because it's dangerous for the person who choose to, drug, to use drugs. So that's the way it's, it is discussed in Canada. Laurie? Yeah. I don't know if you see, but uh, we have a police officer, Fabien Bilran. Yeah, we, we have a police officer in the chat um, saying he particularly shared um, your points about the need for dialogue between uh, police officers and um, law, lawmakers and so on to explain that uh, the, the to explain that public policy in France uh, doesn't work. Um, he also um, asked what was the main argument in Canada to allow this change um, in, in, in the law about uh, cannabis. Okay. Maybe uh, if I can answer to this uh, second question, one, uh, one argument is that the, um, the fact that the, the uh, just say no approach doesn't work. Uh, so, and we have like a illegal, practice that was with a large part of the population uh, who use cannabis and is considered like doing a criminal activity. Uh, so there's an incoherence be between the, legal, uh, the illegal aspect and the, uh, the important part of the population who use. That's one. And the fact that 
the uh, the repressive aspect just say no don't uh, don't works so the 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 choose to regulate uh, and to put more um, money also in prevention instead of repression so all the money that we put in repression without having any results concrete results uh, and to, so it, it's a, cho a choice of society to put this money to uh, prevent use uh, and also to um, the matter of security because we're we were um, the, the the preoccupation to uh, to have a legal offer of this product because the we were in for example for the youth we want more that they go to the legal uh, offer instead of the black market so i would say the the prevention approach the the fact that uh, just say no is not uh, working and the incoherence between the repressive approach and the uh, the the fact that a large part of population in fact use cannabis i would say that that was part of the important agreement that was uh, put in light yeah okay. Is it possible to add some things very, very yes, briefly? Very briefly, yes. very briefly. Um, I think that what is also important to say is that in France, um, there are several tools that have been uh, implemented by um, OFDT, the French Observatory on Drugs, and in their uh, quantitative pools, uh, they, they showed that the French population is more and more aware that a prohibitionist approach doesn't work. And that's also important to say that there is a gap on the discourse of the politicians that is still very focused on a repressive approach and the evolution of the French population who is more and more aware that it doesn't work. Well, thank you, Marie. Thank you very much to all of our speakers today for this uh, very insightful discussion about drug policy in front of countries. So um, we've reached the end of this panel. Um, please check the upcoming panels on the website of the conference. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the OC24 podcast. For more talks, have a look at the podcast feed on whichever platform you use. There are loads more to listen to. Video versions of these talks are also available on the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime YouTube channel. If you would like to share these talks around, we ask that you use the hashtag OC24 and let us know what you think. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime is brought to you by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group on Organised Crime, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime, and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. For more information, head over to oc24.globalinitiative.net. This has been the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Thanks for listening.